Hello, everyone, and thank you for downloading another episode of Hyper Literature Presents. Hyper Literature Presents is an offshoot of the blog hyperliterature.com. It's a blog that I've been running now for many, many years. Uh, please check it out. That's hyperliterature.com. I love your page views. Brings me in a little tiny bit of money, enough to get an ice cream cone at the end of the month. Uh, this episode, Hyper Literature presents Ty Wollison and David Barrow. Uh, Ty Wollison is a farmer. He runs Windy Hill Farms. A really cool guy. Known him for several years now. Uh, David Barrow is the documentarian of the new film entitled Farm City State. Um, don't have any dates yet for the premiere, but he has already submitted to several film festivals, and I'm really, really excited about seeing in this film. Uh, so in this episode, we talk about the local food movement around Austin, uh, local farms, farming. Uh, we talk about David's film, uh, Farm City State. Uh, we talk about all kinds of stuff. My hatred for aioli, or actually the term, um, all kinds of stuff. So fun, fun episode. Uh, a couple of things I want to make sure that I mention. Um, towards the end of the podcast, I mention an article that I read on the Freakonomics web blog, um, and I and I incorrectly assert that it was written by Stephen Levitt. It was not. The article that I read was written by a gentleman by the name of Steve Sexton. I will put a link to that on the webpage. And um, I probably should have done a little bit more research beforehand. Uh, I hate uh, or I hate when people pop articles on me and they haven't actually uh, they don't have them in front of them or they haven't given me time to peruse them so uh, my apologies to Ty and David for popping them with something that they hadn't read uh, but I'll put that up on the website um, I'll also put up an article that is a rebuttal to Steve Sexton's article uh, by a gentleman by the name of let me get that for you uh, Tom Philpot, uh, and that's from the Mother Jones website I also need to offer another attraction. Uh, during the podcast, I foolishly claimed that it would take about eight hours to go from London to Carlisle. Uh, what a fool I am. That usually takes, uh, it looks like, about five hours if you take the M6 up. I am a moron. Eight hours is if you go up to Glasgow and come back down for some reason. or I don't know. I'm, a, I'm an idiot. So uh, we talk about uh, the article. What else? Let's see. Uh, also, I assert that I uh, hoed peanuts until I was 16 years old. That's kind of sort of correct. Um more, it would probably be more correct to say that uh, I was supposed to hoe peanuts uh, during the summer, and uh, normally I would uh, find a cool place to take a nap, or I would uh, ride off on my four-wheeler and find somewhere to get a uh, big red float. Uh, but in any case, uh, I don't want to misinform anyone that I was a harder worker than I actually was. Uh, so in this episode of Hyper Literature, we have Ty Willison and David Barrow. Again, Ty Willison is the... Uh, is the farmer from Windy Hills Farm, David Barrow's new film, Farm City State. Be on the lookout for that in the near future. All right, you guys, enjoy. Hyper Literature presents. What's your vec- vector, Victor? That's why I'm so fucking scared. Are we recording right now? I drink enough wine. I'm going to look like that double headed elephant right there. Parental advisory. Go, exactly. Breaking news, folks. Eat, try, share. Breaking news, folks. It's mayo with garlic. But you should eat meat. Parental advisory. Eat, try, share. That's why I'm so fucking skinny. That's way too much work. No, it's great everywhere. It's good. Do so well. But you should eat meat. Are swords crossed? Ty Wollison and David Barrow. Parental advisory. 
All right, so uh, we're good, and uh, I've got it running. So why don't we go ahead and introduce ourselves? I'll do a cold opening to this whenever I upload it, so right. I'll, I'll inter- introduce everything. But, uh, David, go ahead and tell us who you are. And, hey, by the way, are we gearing this towards the future of Austin – Farming and young farmers, or are we gearing this towards specific film? Uh, I, I was thinking gearing it towards the film. Okay, um, but cool. if you want to, if you want to branch into young farmers and things like that, so normally, well, that's why I wanted him to come. Okay, so normally I don't do any type of uh, research for any of these, but I, I actually did look some stuff up that I wanted to ask you guys. So okay. I've got some questions about farming in general, and then the film specifically. So. Okay, cool. All right, David. Who are you, buddy? Where are you from? Um, my name is David Barrow, and I am a foodie filmmaker that are that I am, and my team are is releasing Farm City State. You are talk good. I I I, I am talk good. Yeah. Um, yeah. No, Farm City State is an independent documentary exploring the local food scene in Austin, Texas, and asking the question. What if an entire city could feed itself? Okay. And what's the storyline? You've got three storylines that you're following in the film, correct? Correct. Uh, there's three storylines. Uh, one of the storylines is basically the uh, how Austin has grown over the past six years, um, how it has proliferated in urban farms, how it's proliferated in farms surrounding Austin, um, and how the farmers' markets have actually proliferated from one in 2003 to four Six years ago to 15 now. Um, that is one subplot. Uh, that follows the uh, timeline of several different farmers around town. The second subplot is a family, a local family who knew nothing about farming. Um, they had never seen a live chicken, actually. <laughs> And uh, we challenged them with eating local for 30 days. Uh, And then finally, uh, the most important thing actually is how does food move around a city? Um, And so you have to look at the distribution methods and patterns and what is efficient, what is not efficient, and what is sustainable for a city when you're talking about local food. Cool, cool. All right, and Ty, give us an introduction for yourself, please, sir. Sure. Uh, Ty Wallison. I am the owner of Windy Hill Farm. It's a family-run business that I took over from my parents about five years ago, um, turned a ranching business into a retail ran- ranching business, essentially. Um, also the current secretary of the board of the Texas Organic Farmer and Gardener Association. Um, and I know David through the Homegrown Revival and through Sonia Cote. Um, and that's my... And interestingly enough, the first Homegrown Revival dinner that we went to, Lee and I were set with both you and Meg, which is so awesome uh, that that, uh, that that's what created those relationships. Those will turn into long dinners, by the way. I think we've shut down a dinner with them at another Hope Market. Oh, really? Dinner, yeah. Yeah, yeah, the second one. One that we got to attend. (laughs) (laughs) We shut it down, and the next thing we know, no one's around. (laughs) Yeah. We're going We're still eating and drinking. That's a good feeling, though. Yeah. So I, I guess the first thing – so, Ty, you're in the film, correct? Yes, I believe I made the cut. He made the cut. Yes. Thank God. No, he made the cut uh, specifically for several different reasons. A, Ty is a, a young farmer, um, which is something that we need here in Texas and many other states. Uh, but also, Ty has a lot of information about uh, how much goat is actually raised right. uh, here in the state of Texas um, and 
what happens to the goat that's raised here and what happens to goat imported into the state of Texas, which really calls about the idea of sustainability and how food moves around an area. Cool. Well, I think I want to go back to something you said a minute ago. You said uh, a young farmer, which is really important. Um, so I don't know if you guys know this about me. So I grew up on a, on a dairy farm. My dad still runs the dairy farm. And um, I guess it was maybe two years ago I went back and we went to the cattle auction. You know, you, you run cattle through there that you don't want or if you need new cattle. And I remember going as a kid and it was a really exciting place to go. There were all kinds of people around the chutes and all kinds of – and it was a lot of action. And I went back with dad, I guess like I said, about three years ago. And there were – I was the youngest person there by 30 years. There, there, there may have been 10 people there, um, and everyone else was just they – were, they were running the cows through. They, they worked there. So what has happened? I mean you're a young guy who started – who took over a farm. Um, what's happening in Texas? Is it just falling apart, the farming community? Is it something that's revitalizing? What, what's, what's going on? Um, well, I, I think it's just the evolution of society has led to – young people not wanting to go back because if your choices are waking up at 3 o'clock in the morning and you know 6 p.m. to milk the cows or moving to Austin and you know having live music and working for Facebook well you made the decision to maybe go for the money instead of something that might be better for society so I mean I think that's the easiest answer I mean I think there's more complications to that because as a society we've kind of changed it used to be you'd have you know four or five kids and one kid would go off to college to be a lawyer or one kid would stay at home and that's just the way it worked and we've just changed you know I mean we've um I mean you know, it's gone from a man-based society to, you know, having a feminist movement with, you know, women as CEOs and all these great things. And it's, that's led to a, you know, a kind of unfortunate dismay of the young farmer. It's, it doesn't, doesn't really exist. Definitely rural. You're, you see more of it in the urban areas with urban gardeners. Right. And that's one of the things that I've experienced too. So, you know, when I go back home, all the farmers there are 65 and over. You know, you come into Austin and I'm, I'm kind of older when I look at some of the farmers. You know, as, as almost 37, a lot of them are younger than I am, which is really weird for me. Um, David, when you were filming the – when you were creating the documentary, did, did the, the family that you followed, did they become involved with farming at all or were they just trying to sus- sustain themselves off of – homegrown food no that's a really good question um actually the family got so excited that the kids started their own herb garden Uh, so in the backyard surrounding their little playground set and all that other good stuff they had cilantro and a little bit of basil and some other herbs and whatnot and they would go and pick it and one of the exciting progressions with them Specifically was that the very first day that we were with them, we had a chef go in, show them how to cook, and then cook them a meal um, and explain techniques, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And then finally, after 30 days, they had to cook a meal from all locally sourced products for that same chef. And all their spices or herbs, rather, came from their backyard. That's and really that great. was really exciting because it had changed so much that instead of going, they're going to rely on the already pre-made full product right. that they were going to make their own ingredients or they were going to go and purchase raw ingredients mm. 
and then make something from that, which is a money-saving thing. Yeah, absolutely. Right. But going back to the young farmers, some of the things that I found interesting in the research and then the progression of the film was that um, a 65% – correct me if I'm wrong – 65% of farmers and ranchers out there are over the age of 63 – and the largest number of people in Texas that are farmers, there's 57,711 people that are over the age of 70 that are farmers and ranchers. Yeah. And that's the largest group. That's amazing. That's like astronomical, right? So there's going to be this void in the next decade or less that needs to be filled, right? I would almost say that it's already <laughs> happened. I mean, it's something that I've written about quite a bit in my own stuff but like when i go back home just driving through the back roads there are just fields completely empty that are just overgrown with weeds and things like that and it's not because it's not because something's wrong with the land it's because farmers have died and Mm -hmm. no one else is farming the land and so you'll see a property of i don't know 500 acres that goes back all the way to the brazos river and there's one trailer house up by the road and that's it and everything else is overgrown because the farmers had di- have died off. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, and one of the other things that's happening, at least in the Comanche area, is that um, you know we're having another oil boom because of fracking in um, in Texas. You're having big money people from Midland; they're coming and buying thousands of acres, right? And putting game fences up and putting exotics. You know, and that's, some of that was you know ranching or farming land. Um, so I think in the ne- you know decade, I think it's happening. But in the next decade, you're going to see a, a land land grab happening with the old ranchers who, you know, eventually you just can't farm it, or right. eventually their kids are going to be like, well, I, I want that check, yeah. you know, I want that hundred acres, which is unfortunate. But um, I, I think you're going to see more and more of that, unfortunately. But yeah. um, that, and then addition, oil wells, wind wind power, lots of things. Where my parents are from, gravel and sand. I, I wouldn't have thought that that was such a big deal, but they are extraordinarily aggressive. I mean, they've been out to my dad's property trying to buy you know, parcels of his land, gravel, sand. So this is something that I learned throughout the film. People who target land specifically for farming are the same people that target that same land for development because good farmland has good gravel hmm. underneath it. Right. And so you want to build a building. You want to make concrete. You need good gravel. So you go buy the land that used to be farmland, this you know largest spinach-producing area in the mm-hmm. world in East Austin and out towards the airport, and you go and you dig up all this fertile soil, displace it. They don't care where it goes because they're taking the gravel and everything underneath right? and then bringing it in town to make condos, other sort of buildings – F1 track. Yeah. <laughs> it's pretty freaky if you drive some of those back roads by the airport. It's like these, it's almost like pits. apocalyptic pits, like yeah. just everywhere. If you fly, you can fly over them and look down too, but it's it's bizarre. Well, really well bizarre. my parents live right next to the Brazos River, and mm. um, there was a family that used to farm uh, cantaloupes and melons, you know, when I was a kid. And um, now there's an enormous pit there. Like, I think it's probably a 30 or 40 acre parcel of land, but oh just gosh. enormous. They have just completely excavated the whole thing. Just yeah. a huge pit. Um, one of the things you said just a minute ago when you were talking about the kids, sorry to jump around, but I, I don't want to forget something. Um, you talked about the kids having kind of a passion for, you know, they saw things growing and they were. Really, 
what do you think comes first? And I'll throw this to both of you guys. What do you think comes first, a, a passion for actually cooking or a passion for farming, ranching, and then that goes into cooking? I mean, I would say it depends on where you're asking that question. Um, I think if you're asking that question to someone in Austin, they'll say appreciation for cooking leads to an appreciation for farming. I think if it's rural, it might actually work the other way. It might be that you know, man, you know, I grew up in you know, I grew up in Goldthwait, and my grandfather was a rancher, and he always had the best beef. I just remember always having the best beef, and so that created an appreciation for cooking because he knew that. His family had it. Um, I, I would say, still though, the upper majority would be for me in cooking first. Um, you learn to appreciate food by cooking. Yeah, I completely agree because the very first thing that I mean, it's, it's it's a want, right? Or it's an everyday thing. You want to eat, so you have to learn to either source it or cook it to eat it. Um, so following that line of reasoning then, I mean, if we've got a problem with outsourcing our food, so is the problem education about farming itself or is the problem education about food, like what type of food you eat, how it's cooked, food prep? Is that the answer? Mm, not with the farming and cooking question, no. no. No, I mean, everyone has to eat, right? So if they learn how to cook, that's one obstacle. Um, is the the convenience of being able to get the food and the convenience of being able to consume the food, but the farming aspect is more of it, that takes a really per, uh, it takes a person with a whole lot of fortitude it takes a person with a frame of mind that they're not going to care if it's 110 degrees outside <laughs> and they're out sweating and itching and getting dirty and all that other good stuff for 10 hours a day. Yeah, And Texas provides a very unique problem where you deal with drought and you deal with humidity that makes farming extremely difficult. I mean there's just absolutely no way to tackle those problems unless you have some sort of perseverance and fortitude um, as a person trying to overcome like physical problems and physical um, barriers. I mean that's – much respect to all those people who go out there. That's not something that I would do. Sorry. Sorry. <laughs> no, yeah, I mean, that's, that goes back to reasoning on why young people aren't doing it. I mean, yeah. I mean, a lot of people would rather, you know, do the AC and a computer is a whole lot easier than yeah. Well, I can tell you, up working. until I was about 16, I hoed peanuts for for summer job, and that sucks bad. Yeah, and I, I, <laughs> I mean, that's not, hay, that and it not hurts, fun. right? It, it's hurt. That's painful. Yeah. yeah. You know, yours is a arthritic causing hand problem, right? Yeah. Mine was a back-breaking summer job in Anahuac, Texas. It's just, it's horrible. Yeah. Right? But it taught me something that, you know, someone who grew up elsewhere is not going to learn, and it's really important. There's a work ethic that you learn. Do you feel like the, the the family that you followed in the film? Do you feel like they started to appreciate that type of thing after? So again, the experiment was to see if they could sustain themselves. Is that the goal was to see if they could source locally for thirty days? Okay, they had to use a monthly budget that they already had, um, and they had to see how difficult or easy it was because there are real tangible problems with getting local food. And that is 
where do you actually find it? Right. Right. So that goes into the distribution thing. And then there's the perceived problems with local food, which is cost. Is it a barrier? And we kind of disprove that. And we also disprove the fact that it's more difficult to source <laughs> uh, because there becomes an emotional attachment to sourcing local. And uh, there, a distinct quote from the mother of the family was, it's way easier and way more convenient to go to the farmer's market and support these people who are giving something back to our community than driving five less minutes and going to the grocery store down the street. So it became an emotional attachment first and foremost. Second most, they spent less money. All right? They typically spent 12% of their monthly budget on food, which, again, for American ways, that's relatively normal. Yeah. In worldwide standards, that's extremely low. But they ended up spending between 9 and 10% during this challenge month, which is just amazing, you know, because they utilized everything. And I think you already answered the question, and that was – my next question was, did that lead them to kind of a greater appreciation for the farmers from the local community? Ah, yeah, I didn't answer that one, did I? Um, you kind of did in a roundabout way. So the father of the family, Wallace, mentioned a couple things, and he goes – he had a greater pride for Texas, and he had a greater appreciation seeing the chickens that laid his eggs at Springdale Farm and Boggy Creek Farm uh, than he did going and picking up a quote-unquote styrofoam package at right. the grocery store. Um, the kids were – just enamored because they actually they went to the urban farms. They got a tour of the urban farms as one of their weekend learning experiments, and they got to taste stuff right off the plant. <laughs> and one of the quotes: "We're back. We're going in the car. We're going back home." And one of the quotes was like, "Mom, I thought we used to eat healthy. <laughs> we don't. <laughs> it's so good. I mean, they were tasting raw broccoli. Yeah." They were tasting raw carrots, and they said that it did not taste like the broccoli they'd eaten previously or the carrots they'd eaten previously. And these are standard dietary elements of you know any American diet, any, any cultural diet. Absolutely. And, and yet they tasted different, and the kids started appreciating them. Well, one of the things that that kind of leads me to think about then is – and Todd, maybe you can answer this a little bit better – is <laughs> – I know when I go to the farmer's market, there's um, – I don't know. There's a more intimate relationship between myself and the person who's growing the food. And I think that as a consumer, that can be both kind of good and bad. For a consumer who's used to going to somewhere like Walmart or HEB, there's the knowledge that the person that you're buying stuff from, they didn't really have anything to do with that food. So if it's bad, I can go back and bitch. And it's not, I'm not attacking that person, right? And there's always this fear in my head at a farmer's market, what if I buy this and it's not good or something's wrong? I don't want to attack that person personally. Now, you know, if it was you, I don't think I would have a problem. It's like, hey, man, I'm having – you know, what? but there's still that fear. Well, um, I think that's true. I mean I think people should get over that. Personally, <laughs> because I, if it's not good, come to me and tell me what you do. How do sure. you, you cook that goat? How do you cook that broccoli? Um, you know, was 
there actually is something wrong with the meat or maybe you know you decided you're going to take on goat chops and you didn't know that if you overcooked them there it's like chewing leather right you know and then i mean in my for me it's i like having that connection because you know, i mean the way i do business if you didn't like it you know i'm going to give you something else and you know write down a recipe for you right there you know and sure. be like try this I mean, I know what you mean, though, because in general, the mental, you know, we're, the, what we're used to mentally is that, oh, yeah, just go and buy it, H-E-B, I if it sucks, just you. throw it away, and I'm not going to buy it next time. Right. And, and that's, and, and I wasn't really talking about myself, but I know my mom kind of feels like that. So my dad and I used to run a computer business, and we'd do computer trade shows. Mom hated them because she didn't like to have to haggle. She didn't like to have to... I, I don't know. She liked she liked the convenience of being able to swipe this and then I leave. You know what I mean? And so you, you think it's just a learning curve that the consumer has to get over that, that there are actually people behind this? I, I do. I, I think um, we've basically you have to go back to an older way of dealing with things. I mean, people used to just trust their farmers and they might haggle with them. I mean, a lot of farmers don't like haggling. I mean, if someone haggles with me, well, you know, never know. Maybe I'm, you know, maybe I'll give it to you for a little cheaper. No, I don't want to encourage haggling. I know that's a pain in the ass. I hate it too. It is, but But I I just mean as far as it is, but for, yeah, I don't want to go home with 20 pounds of jalapenos either. So, (laughs) that's true. I mean, I I know it's, it's a weird thing. I mean, I'm saying if you come at the end of the market and you see a bunch of vegetables, you might say, Hey, you know, I don't have much money, but I mean, anyway, that's that's another story. My stock but. answer was, how much how much would you take this? We'll see in this show. You going to take all of them? If you're not going to take all of them, it doesn't it doesn't help me at all. Right? Yeah. <laughs> right. I'm yeah. going to have to pack up yeah, all this other shit. Me. So if you want to take yeah, all right. of it, then I will discount it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. If I'll give you a wholesale discount, right? Instead of like, yeah, well, instead of fifty cents, twenty five cents. Right. right. Yeah. Well, yeah. Whatever. You're going to yeah. take two? No, it's full price. Right. Make make <laughs> worthwhile haggling. Yeah. Yeah. I guess, yeah. If that makes sense. Get a wholesale haggling. Um, yeah, it's an yeah, it's an edu- edu- educational process. I mean, it all is, but it's it's just there's so many layers of it. Um, it. I mean, I don't know. I mean, to be honest, I don't know where to start. I think there's lots of places that you do start, and some work for some people, some don't. Sure. But you, you start somewhere with people. Maybe it's with the family doing a month challenge, and that changes their whole life. Or maybe it's, you know, one day you decide, yeah, hey, I'm going to go to the farmers market and. All of a sudden, you buy a bunch of stuff. They tell you how to cook it, and you fall in love. Or maybe it's you watch Food Incorporated. Or yeah, you maybe can, just you gotta know, try. It. Just gotta try something, and it's it. it's happening. I mean, definitely. You know, we're in a pretty awesome city, Austin, where we have. We are really lucky. We're crazy lucky. Yeah. I mean, you know, I saw up in Dallas too, and it's not the same up there. Mm. There's a pretty big lack for, um, you know, produce and mm. even proteins. It's a pretty small. So. We're super lucky. Mm-hmm. This is one question. Oh, I'm sorry, Dave. Go ahead. No, I, well, I was going to say two things. First off, I, I mean, this is fairly general and may just be my opinion, but if the food tastes bad from farms in Austin, hmm. I would think it was the cooking method that was applied to it that made it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that, that's just my opinion. Uh, no bias. So, no bias. No bias. <laughs> so go learn how to cook. Uh, but, I mean, for the most part, all the farmers are putting recipes out on their websites. They have recipe sheets at the farmer's markets or at the farm stands. I mean, people really are recommending ways to get things done. Um, so it's it's not for lack of trying from the farmer's aspect. It's Oh, this is bold. A um a barrier of receiving, I think. 
in some circumstances. You're going to have to define receiving. What do you mean? Consumers need to learn how to listen. You're going to have to totally cut this out. I am getting fucking bold. No, I mean, I was in, you know, I've I've got into situations at the farmers market where someone comes and tells me, "Yeah, this wasn't any good." And I say, "Well, how did you cook it?" And they tell me how they cooked it. And I was like, "Well, you know, you know, you didn't do it right, but they're convinced that it was the meat products so in a way that is. That's they don't want to hear it because they're convinced that however they did it is the way they should, even though you know, I eat more goat than the, the you know the average sure. person, except maybe like chupacabra or something. Yeah, but, um, <laughs> totally. but, I'll tell you so, to cook that later. But no, I mean, that, I mean that's why they call it agricultural arts. Yeah, and culinary arts. There's ways of doing it, and you need to educate yourself to be able to go through the entire process and to do it correctly. That's it. Um, so I would. I would really hope that the consumers start educating themselves. I thought you said this was going to be a bold comment, so I'm going to throw this out to both of you. But I thought one of the things that you were about to broach, and this is one of the questions that I had down that I wanted both of you to answer is, in my head, one of the challenges that we have to overcome is kind of a political ideology. And and I hate to to break it down like that, but it seems like that that this kind of movement is – is bifurcated by political ideology. On one side, we have a lot of people who are very supportive of corporatism. And on the other side, we have a lot of people who are not. And I don't know that this problem is something that should be divided by political ideology. I don't think it is at all. You don't think it is? No, I I don't think I'm wrong on that. Okay, this is great. So this is how it's divided by, right? Producers and consumers, right? Consumers, people who support the local food movement, and farmers and all the other stuff may be fairly progressive. I don't think we can argue with that, right? But look at the producers. What do they want? They want to do whatever they want with their land. They don't want the government to tell them what they do. And they want the least amount of exposure. So your producers, some people, specifically urban farmers here in Austin, Texas, and namely Glenn from Springdale Farm, that is a staunch conservative. He doesn't want anybody telling him what to do. Least amount of government possible. Love him. Respect him. Have debates with him weekly. But all these hippie people, these young progressives that go and shop his farm stand, they disagree with him ideologically, but they will support him because he's doing something that they believe in, and he's providing a service that he wants to because, A, it provides food for his family, B, it allows him to run a business. He also gets to not have government interference for the most part. And so I don't think it's an ideological thing. You don't think it is on the part of the consumer? So trying to get – and by this I mean a lot of the people where I grew up, they would would raise or grow whatever – sell it to a co-op, and then buy stuff at Walmart because that's what you did. Hippies go to the, the farmer's market. And I hate to hate to use terms like that, but you sell your stuff to a co-op, and then you go to Walmart. No, it becomes a financial thing. It's not a political thing. You don't think so? Well, I mean, I'd say – I mean, I think for the consumer's side of it, it is. I mean, I you know, if you go to the farmer's market, SFC gets some – Minorities and other folks because sure. of their WIC program, right? Right. Programs like that, where the, you know, or their 
And that's the, two for one. Basically, you spend a dollar. Well, that's dollar at their you, east market. That's okay. Yeah, the double down, double. the D dip is what they call it. Okay. Um, and I actually have hard numbers for this too. But uh, <laughs> the D dip actually allows this. You know, you spend ten bucks, you get twenty dollars worth of produce, which is really important for food accessibility. Sure. Right, and it supports local food. Um, go on. Oh, I, I was just gonna, I was going to say that I think that the. In general, um, I think – I mean I don't know Glenn quite well enough, but I'd say he's probably you know, on libertarian leaning. And I'd say that in general, it's libertarian and progressives, both from consumers and producers of what we're talking about, local kind of right. – you know, I think those are the two niches. I think if you do get into a more corporate mentality, it's more of a toss-up. I think some people do truly – I mean hell, who knows? Maybe the Walton family – Buys all local stuff to eat at home, but they still they're going to still serve the, the masses right. with the what makes money. You know, if, if the consumers came out <clears throat> like they did with hormone free milk and said, mm. "I'm not going to buy you know GMO crap sweet corn from Walmart anymore," well, Walmart would stop selling it, and yeah. they'd bring in local corn if that's mm. what everyone wanted. I mean, it's a it's a money business in the game, and all of us, no matter who you ask, we're all in it for some form of income because you have to grow your business or you have to sustain. I mean, that's, mm-hmm. that's the way the world, that's the way the world we've created has worked and the way it's worked, you know, probably as far back as cavemen, you know, I mean, in some sense, there's a monetary value to something, but I, th- there, I think there is a political divide to some aspect, but it's also cool to see like, you know, two different sides kind of coming together on the issue too, like libertarian progressive where you probably share the social values of things, but economically, maybe not necessarily, but you're right. still, it's still about embedding the local economy because it's, you know, that then is the kind of the Ayn Rand effect of that's the embetterment that way. Or from a progressive standpoint, it's just the right thing to do. Right. So, I mean, maybe I'm looking at it from the past then, you know what I mean? Maybe I'm seeing it from, Kid eyes, right, how, yeah. how I viewed the situation 25 years ago. You know what I mean. So as as a relatively new Austinite, you know, I mean, I, it's you know, I definitely. I mean, like I sell goat saddles to Trace. Well, I mean, how many execs are staying there? You know, sure. I mean, and they're wanting to eat at that restaurant, and that restaurant does well because they have a forager, and they have, and I guarantee. You know, and or a few of my Dallas accounts are definitely. I mean, you know, Dallas is probably a little more conservative definitely yeah. in certain areas, um, and people still want to go to that restaurant because it's the local food place. I mean, FT thirty three. You know, it's like keeps getting all these awards and stuff. His whole thing is local food, so he's bridging mm-hmm. a gap. And then that, you know, and then maybe the husband doesn't necessarily buy local, but his wife maybe is going to the. I mean, that's. Being a little, you know, or maybe it's the other way. The wife, yeah, yeah. the husband's going, and the wife working. But um, I'm a home husband. Yeah, it's all I right. Mean, yeah, <laughs> whichever way it works. Um, someone is then. Well, God, we had that great meal at FD33 where they use all the farmer stuff. Well, now I'm going to go to Central Market and wow, what's this Johnson's Backyard Garden stuff? It says it's local, only 120 miles. Wow, it sounds great. So, and that's someone who's bridged a gap. I mean, I, yeah, yeah, you know, it could be. You know, stir conservative. You know, for lots of things we wouldn't agree with with other people. But so maybe we're over that ideological hump. Then I think in general I, it's mixed. 
you know, I think it's we are in general over that. I think there's you could certainly probably if you wanted to categorize things. Right. But, but in it, general, there's yeah. no clear line then. I don't think so. That's a good thing, I no, guess. The larger the city, the less the ideological disparity. I oh, will see that's well, actually well, the right thing. Okay, yeah, if I you go to if you go to Comanche and I when I was down at the square, then you know, 15 people were coming to buy stuff from me were definitely on one side of the spectrum and then, you know, everyone else was on a different. Right. So that's that's a good point. So yeah. you think it is you think it has something to do with the, the size of the city then? Uh, yeah, because there's way more factors that go into a bigger city, education, financial, sure. uh social um, availability. Availability, of course. Yeah. And demand, too. I guess yeah. one of the cool things about Austin is because of all the great restaurants, we're getting a lot of great produce and proteins and things mm-hmm. like that that come into the city that other people can buy and enjoy, I guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, in the Brownwood Comanche area, you know, within a 120 mile radius, there's probably two restaurants that <laughs> buy local stuff. So, yeah. I mean, what people have no idea what that is well i guess the challenge for there too would be that even if you wanted to serve local food you wouldn't have enough of a customer base to be able to do that you know you would buy stuff and it would go bad and you would lose a hell of a lot of money you'd have to have serious capital to be willing to just basically lose money i mean a place i worked you know the the family had definitely good good capital and i'm pretty sure they weren't making much money on the restaurant, but they wanted to do that because they wanted a place to eat semi-decent food. Really. And they could absorb the cost. <laughs> and they could absorb the cost because they had other businesses. Mm-hmm. I mean, right. And here's something else. And I know that we we can bag on Walmart fairly easily um, because of how large they are, but it is proven that they buy the most organic produce out of any other corporate. You know, rest uh, not restaurant chain, uh, grocery chain, right? But here's something that's more that hits more close to home: the San Antonio School District, the Independent School District. Yeah, they spend a hundred and fifty thousand dollars a month on local or regional food because the head of their kitchen buying or produce buying whatever decided that he was going to do that two years ago, and so just that school district that. Spends one hundred fifty thousand dollars a month on local and regional stuff, is doing more for change than a single restaurant in Austin where the chef gets all the celebrity, which is just fine. And the chefs recognize this. Yeah. Uh, H E B, fairly big southern grocery chain, right? Eighty thousand dollars a month hmm. on local and regional produce. That's amazing. That's amazing, right? Now, it may be a small percentage of their total outcome, but that it works huge dividends for money that goes right back into the local economy. Absolutely. Well, and not to mention all the outreach and social outreach that they that they do wherever they're at. I mean, I've right. had I've had students who, you know, they get their whole ride paid for because of HEB and things like, you know, right. scholarships and Right. And so whatnot. so it's going to be people like that that make a difference in the future whereas, you know, all these singular individuals will make small dents, which is good. They add up. But those larger people are really going to make movements and cause waves. Yeah, I mean, you know, imagine if UT, St. Edwards, Houston Tillerson, plus AISD all said, hey, you know what? We want 50% local. Mm-hmm. 
well, we wouldn't have enough farms then. Right. right. And we need more farmers, which means we need more young farmers to start off their stuff. Right. I mean, that, that has to be like the, listen, we'll do it if you can provide it, which is I've heard um, what, like UT said, well, if you can give us enough when we need it, we'll do it. Right. And they have a $7 million kitchen budget. The University of Texas right. has a $7 million budget to buy food and that goes to u.s foods yep wow because they can provide it now i think it's eight percent of that don't quote me i learned this recently but eight percent of that u.s foods sources locally what's their definition of local texas louisiana texas louisiana and say that louder (laughs) let me uh (laughs) I'm going to pause for a second, you guys. Okay. <laughs> Sorry about the, the pause there, everybody. Uh, we had stuff we had to take care of, namely refilling our glasses. Um, so I guess what I wanted to start with here after the break, uh, you guys were talking a little bit earlier about um, about the harsh conditions in Texas, just about the, the conditions and how difficult it is. Um, Ty, this might be something you can answer. Do you think that's just a case of we've been farming the wrong thing for so long? Again, I mean, I grew up in a place where you, you farmed cattle. You farmed uh, – I mean, there were chickens and things like that. But is it just that we were trying to farm things that were unsustainable for this geographic region? Um, I think yes and no. I mean, I think that we've probably – the more we've you know monopolized and corporized our – food system, I think we've gone away from things that maybe used to do good. I mean, the Santa Gertrudis is a breed of cattle that the King's Ranch developed long, long time ago. That it was a cow that did really good, but you're never going to see Santa Gertrudis anywhere around. It's all Angus, all these cows that do really I was about to say, I've never even heard of that. Right. And this, I mean, it's a very, like if you're in the cattle world, like breeders definitely know about the Santa Gertrudis, sure. but everyone wants Angus. I mean, if you, even at the auction, if you go, Yep. Buyers want to buy Angus because that's what that's what the slaughterhouses want. They want Angus meat because that's what sells. Angus doesn't make any sense for Texas. It's a cold weather cow. Um, does really good in Colorado. Um, needs lots of grass, um, but can do good in a feedlot situation. So hence its popularity. Um, you know, there's types of animals that I think would do even better in Texas. One would You're be, not talking about goat, are you? Goat, exactly. Indeed, I am. You know, so basically, in the the Spanish, um, however long ago, you know, conquistadors came, brought goats with them, and I think that they recognized the climate was pretty similar to drier climates in southern Spain, and said, "Hey, well, you know, these black Spanish goats can do really good." Fast forward to the, the 1960s, someone said, well, hey, there's this really meaty goat from South Africa called a boar goat, which is what we raise. I think they'll do really good. What's the name of it again? I'm sorry. Boar. Um, it's like what they call the Dutch in okay. South Africa. The, they're called boars, and the name of the goat is boar goat, B-O-E-R. Um, so the reason goats are so great, well, if you think about it just from pure statistics, it's the most widely eaten red meat in the world. And there's a reason for that. Goats are really adaptable to climates. Um, the boar and the Spanish goat do really good in dry climates, so mm. great for West Texas environments, South Texas. Um, 
for East Texas, where it's a little more humid, the soil's a little deeper. There's a um, New Zealand breed called a Kiku. Okay. Um, it does really great there. Um, and people are raising them here. It's just, if you're in Austin, it's most likely, you know, two years ago, you didn't even, you wouldn't ever even think of eating goat in a restaurant. Right. Which is crazy. We raise over a million goats in Texas. That's where the 70% of the goat me in the U.S. is raised in this state. That is amazing. And 90, I don't think anyone knows that. No, I mean, no one knows that. And 90% yeah. of it's shipped out of the state. So we have a sustainable meat product that's raised here for a reason. Like ranchers in San Angelo and Goldthwait are raising goats because they do really good on really low inputs. You don't need a lot to have a really good product that you could then sell and unfortunately get shipped out of the state. And then to make it even more crazy, we ship in – um, a crap load of goat from Australia into Texas to f- to fulfill the ethnic markets, the um, Latino and the you know. Smart- because we're shipping all of the native goat, well, native, but we're yeah. shipping all of the native goat out, and so we have to ship goat, goat in. in. It's the, the the crazy thing, you know, with the world, the world, the way that it works is like, you know, until recently, if you went to a halal or a Latin market. You're going to be buying Australian goat. It started to change in the last two years. I mean, I I don't think it was me. My mom thinks that like I'm a big a part of this. I don't really think. I think it's just that people. It's developed into something like that. But I mean, now you go to some halal markets there. You can buy um, Texas goat. It's, Windy it's, Hill Farms goat. Not Windy Hill Farm goat because no, we don't we don't butcher halal. Um, okay. Okay. But. You know, and that's but there's people in Goldthwaite, which is very close to Comanche where we are, who are butchering halal. Most of their business is on the East Coast, where there's high populations of you know ethnic uh, minorities, Muslims or kosher's kosher folks. And um, but now you can get it locally, which is good. But it's still the the numbers are still the same. You know, the percentage that we input in Texas and what we send out is just kind of crazy. We have a great product that does really good. Sure. And the beef ranchers don't need to go away. They just need to, you know, if we changed our breeds to something that does better, um, Longhorn, Santa Gertrudis, Brahma, right. um, we raise Red Brangus, which is a mix of Angus and Brahma. So you take Angus, which is the great beef everyone wants, yep. breed them with Brahma that are super durable that, you know, I mean, they're the ones with the humps that you think of in India and like yep. some street that who knows what they're living on. Um, make that connection. They do really good. So connects to what we've been talking about. Yeah, absolutely. It, making what works the best and getting away from this feedlot mentality and realizing that we can still raise a crap load of meat and do it really health, healthy and without many inputs. It just cha- We have to change our the mentality we're used to. And did you find, David, whenever you were filming the documentary – with the family that you followed, um, did they ever come up against a protein like goat that they were unfamiliar with, and did they did they recoil, or did they did they take to it immediately? Oh my gosh, this is a, one of the most amazing stories, and I wish we would have captured it on camera. Um, so this is a breaking news, folks. Um, the they tried the goat scenes? for the first time. Yeah, this is behind the scenes. They tried awesome. goat for the very first time during this month, uh, and they were amazed by it. Uh, they were trepid, right? They were trepid about tasting it mm-hmm. or anxious about tasting it. Yep. Um, so, so that was something that they did overcome. But one of the greatest things is that we were at their house and we were filming and they were cooking some dinner and they were hanging out and they were doing one of their Sunday communal 
like snack time, dinner time type of things. And the mother of the family pulls out all this frozen meat. And of course we start talking about it and it comes about that it's Axis deer (laughs) from the King Ranch. And I'm going, this is amazing. Where, how did you get this? And her father hunts on the King Ranch. Axis deer, which is an invasive species, right? This is one of the greatest inventions in Texas right now. Anything that is an invasive species should be hunted because it's really good meat. Yeah. She didn't know how to cook it. So every single time she did cook it, it was gamey and they didn't like it. Mm -hmm. And so she emailed the chef that she had the very first week, found out how to cook Angus or, uh, sorry, Axis deer. They now love it, and they ask her father for more. (laughs) This is a climate-adaptive protein that can proliferate here, but is also an invasive species that should be cold so that we can still remain or contain a healthy ecosystem, right? Mm -hmm. Goats, climate-adaptive species that grow well here. They don't ruin anything. They're amazing. People should consume them. But then again, it goes back to the whole consumer education. How do you actually prepare it, prepare it correctly? And the, I think a lot of farmers are moving towards climate-adaptive practices for proteins and produce and whatnot. Um, and we're going to see that in the coming years. Uh, definitely with other farming methods um, and more innovative methods as well. This doesn't have anything to do with your film, nor does it have anything to do with your farm, but I want your take on this because I read about this article today. Um, there's a there's a lab that's creating artificial meat. Oh, you're already shaking your that. head. You're shaking horrible. your head tight. Yeah. So what are your that thoughts on that? Horrible. Well, I mean, watch Solvent Green, and yeah. that's the beginnings of it. I mean, that's what I, I think that – I mean, we don't need to grow – food in the laboratory when we have plenty of food and it's a transportation issue of getting food to people. So why even start to grow something in a lab? Um, I mean, I think that's basically a, a equal equal with GMO, genetically modified foods. I mean, it's Frankenstein foods. One of the one of the articles that I read, one of the positives that they were that they were pulling out from this was that now we can allow or now vegetarians can enjoy meat. Without actually having to consume meat. Well, what I say is if you're a vegetarian and you're craving meat that much, then maybe you should eat meat. (laughs) Completely. Agreed. And here's something else. So so NASA creates a lot of products um, in a lab. Sure. Okay? Now, they take raw ingredients to create their products that they send out in space. So if one of the... Well, used to be most funded governmental agencies can go and create healthy stuff for the astronauts to take into outer space, which is so not local. Why can't a lab do the same thing? Hey, listen, take some mushrooms and make a powder out of them. I'm completely fine with that, right? But make it a real product. Right. So so this whole lab created proteins and going further if they make produce – it's that's playing God. The yeah, conservatives or, shouldn't agree with that. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, it's, yeah, it's just it doesn't. It's weird. I mean, it doesn't make any sense. I think them using that as a selling point is purely that is like, well, we can tell people it's this. I mean, there's good vegetarian products that are, I don't think are trying to be meat, like the field roast sausages. Like, 
I don't think it's a meat. It's not meat substitute, but they're just really good. Like they're versus like trying to create like a burger that tastes like a burger. Tastes like a burger. Looks like a burger, but it's not a burger. Well, then if you need eat it, the that, burger. It, you then eat the burger. It's better to buy a you know um, grass fed and finished you know steer or maybe an animal that got a little grain, organic or non-GMO grain or something. But I think that's way better for you, and I guarantee you that even. If you did nutritional information on it, it's going to be better for you than something that's made in a lab. I mean, I just I think that if you're buying something made by Sagenta or Monsanto, it, I mean, they don't have you in mind. They have a dollar sign in mind. And mm-hmm. I think with a farmer, you're getting both because we, we, I, I truly want people to eat healthier products and at the same time sure. just make a business out of it. But I'm not – I think with big business, it's just – Pure money. Well, let me let me ask so. you this then. One of the things that uh, that I've read from like Mari Batali and um, I think uh, Jamie Oliver and people like that, some of these celebrity chefs, they claim that we just eat way too much meat. You know, we 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 eat way too much meat. Um, we should scale it back a bit, and produce should become the the the, the spotlight should be on the produce, and the, the meat should be reserved for a special occasion. I mean, I think if you look for you look at prices in the past. Like steak is at an all-time low. Like in the 50s and 60s, it w- you really had to save up and really save up some money to get a steak. What do you guys think about that? I mean, is, I, that, is that I, the case? Well, I completely agree. I think we do eat too much meat. I mean, you go to eat at a fancy restaurant. Typically, you're just going to get a big piece of meat and then you know, like some fancy cilantro paste. Sure. And that's your vegetable. Um, I, I think that is an issue. I mean, you know, Angel Ioli. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> right. Right. I mean, I, it's I know mayo it. with garlic. It's mayo with garlic. That's what Ioli is, damn it. It's good too. Um, Sorry, that was my rant. No, 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 no. <laughs> I. I mean, I know, like personally, like we usually try, you know, eat meat a couple times a week, sure. maybe three times a week, um, and it's never like, yeah, I'm not eating a 20 ounce porterhouse. It's going to be, you know, like. Meg and I, my wife and I split like, you know, a ribeye or New York strip. So we're each getting like six ounces and it's awesome. And I mean, I'm lucky enough that since I'm a rancher, a supplier, I have, I mean, in theory, I have a, you know, freezers filled with meat, but I think from a budget side, I mean, if you're going to complain about prices of food and you're eating meat every day, well, that's probably your first problem because (laughs) proteins are going to cost more versus produce is actually pretty inexpensive from local farms because mm-hmm. or you can grow your own too i mean if you're in an apartment you probably can't grow that much but i think if you made that decision like hey i'm gonna cut out eating steak or hamburger every yeah. night and well you just probably saved a crap load of money on your budget and probably added a little bit to your life absolutely yeah you definitely definitely if you were probably buying you know crappy meat to begin with I sure mean, you know, I mean, the paleo diet is kind of the craze now, and it's not super. I mean, it's not pure meat centric, but I think, personally, I think a little too meat centric. Um, Most of the science doesn't support it, right? Yeah, but but I think that there's still that desire to try to go back to some some Eden. Time. I just don't think like Neanderthals were living to ninety, though. You know, I think they were dying at forty-five. So I was still always right. confused by that. Like, right. this, well, and I think too, if you look like, at uh, anthropology, that we were actually farming things a lot earlier than a lot of people really yeah, realize. Yeah, right, um, right. I mean, the Sumerians were making beer what two thousand two thousand years ago. So I mean, it's, yeah. the the whole notion that we were just eating raw meat 
a thousand year ago is nonsense. Well, right, and I think we've evolved a lot since then. So. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and so. so, what was what was your experience with with the family that you followed in the film? I mean, did they have a hard time? Did, did you feel like that they relied a lot on meat as far as their diet was concerned? Daily diet? Uh, it's a really good question. So, mother, father, three daughters. Just caveat and all that other good stuff. They found out that. The hardest thing to overcome was snack time. Kids love to snack. They wake up, they yeah. eat breakfast, all morning they snack, they come home from school, they snack until dinner, they snack before they go to bed, right? Yet instead of processed foods or snacky items like pretzels and chips and all this other good stuff, they found that if they continually supplied vegetables, that their snack times lessened and then they were full. They weren't consuming a bunch of salt. That just makes you thirstier and which yep. makes you hungrier, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So they found out that, that the easiest thing was to replace their produce. And it was less expensive because they weren't as buying as many snacks. Hmm. Um, the most difficult thing was the fruit. We're in Texas. So you have to have a sense of place. And that's what everyone should recognize about a locavore diet is that you kind of have to have a sense of place where goat is great here, but it may not be great in, I don't know, Colorado, Washington, D.C., Maine. What's that? Goat's great everywhere. Oh, goats are great everywhere? Okay. Caveat for that. So many breeds. So many. (laughs) I mean, like breeds for every environment. That's why it's the most widely eaten red meat. So. Brilliant. Just well, that does lead me to an interesting question, though. Here recently, I think it was on Stephen Levitt's blog. So Stephen Levitt and Stephen Dubner were the guys that wrote uh, Freakonomics and Super Freakonomics. Yeah. Levitt's a pretty famous economist. One of the things that he argued was that in some instances, not in all, but in some instances, it's actually more damaging to the environment and more expensive to eat locally, if we're talking about a 100-mile, 200-mile radius, than it is to eat strawberries that are produced in another state, but they're produced in a socially conscious manner. That was one of the things that he was arguing, that like if you look at the way produce is done in some of these larger farms, they're able to produce things with a smaller environmental footprint, and they're able to produce it much more socially conscious than smaller farmers can, because a smaller farmer is going to have to rely on a lot more petroleum products as far as tractors and things like that, you know, that type of thing. Um, any 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 thoughts on that? I know you guys haven't read the articles. Um, I've got a plenty to say about it. Do you have anything to say I about that? I would say, I mean, I, I don't know if he's in, looked into the Rodell Institute, but I mean, the Rodell Institute has pretty much disproved that and said that you can do it locally. I mean, I think that's... Um, well, he didn't say you, could, you, you couldn't do it locally. Well, one but of the he, things he was saying, like fruit, was one of the things that he right. was specifically mentioning. Well, it's the type of fruit. I mean, if you eat blackberries in May... I mean, blackberries grow wild all over the place. I mean, the, there's no carbon sure. fr- footprint. You ride your bike out to a, I mean. Well, I don't want to misrepresent his argument, but I think what his argument was that a rabid devotion to you have to eat locally sometimes isn't as environmentally conscious as you would like to think. That he was saying that because it's okay. Because if you're using local, meaning also like conventional local, then yes, I'd, I'd agree with that. I mean, I think he's using that to... I don't know. I mean, I'm doing you a disservice because you haven't read the article. I apologize. Well, yeah, I'm just. I think that. Yeah, right. Because I don't know exactly what he said, but sure. to say like that, people just. I mean, look, going like local crazy. I think is. I mean, 
you know, misnomer unless someone's doing a blog about eating local for, you know, a year. It's typical that most, I mean, yeah, we all make conscious decisions. Sure. So, I mean, I don't know. I don't know. I, I guess I have to read it because I don't know exactly. Yeah. So one of, one of the biggest arguments is how food moves about, right, distribution. And it's all about how, let's say, New York City. On the island, what, 8.2 million people? Not a whole lot of open land. Right. So local food that moves about in a dense population, it takes a pickup truck to move from some backyard garden in New York City or rooftop garden in New York City, and they have to drive 20 blocks to a farmer's market. The amount of energy that that pickup truck takes to drive 20 blocks to move 20 pounds, hypothetically speaking, 20 pounds of produce. Per pound of produce, that takes more carbon energy, quote-unquote energy, to move and to distribute and to get out to people than an 18-wheeler that can move 500 pounds from Colorado, Texas, or whatever. It, that can't be argued. That's fine when you break it down to stuff like that. But a locavore diet fits small to medium markets, whereas it may not fit as well, debatable, larger markets. And this is one of the huge caveats between Stephen Levitt's um, arguments and other people's arguments like that, where you have to look at what is actually grown there and then how that food moves about. And then it becomes about sourcing too, right? So you can't just source everything from this one, you know, farm truck that grows all so your stuff. So hold on. Are you telling me that I have to be educated as a consumer? Yes. That is – that's way too much work. So I'm sorry. See, <laughs> so way too much does work. That, does that same argument take into effect if that local stuff's grown organically versus the other stuff sprayed with – Never goes into never. It's never. purely, it's purely distribution. See, that's, that's from from what that's, I have read and that's from all Levitt's, these articles. That's what Levitt's arguing too. It's is purely that, distribution. It's purely distribution. It's distribution. Of size per distribution with how much is actually distributed. So right. the math is that's easy. Duh, you're yeah. going to spend yeah. less on fossil fuels then per a thousand pounds as you would five pounds. Right. But that's why it works in some places and doesn't work in others. Per that argument. So there's huge holes in that, and he's a smart individual, and I completely respect him, but he needs to well, place no, to be some fair, outlines. The, the article was fairly nuanced as far as, you know, it just works in this, and it's basically what you said, David. It depends, New York. Right. It, he wrote it specifically about New York, didn't he? London. London. So basically the same thing. Right. One of the things they don't was, have farms in London anymore. Well, right, and that was one of the things he said is if you're up by Carlisle, if, 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 you're, if you're living in London and you're buying something that was trucked in from Carlisle, it might be cheaper than something that you're getting from Cambridge simply because that farm up there is able to operate more efficiently. Can grow 8,000 pounds worth. Right. How far is that from London? Carlisle is probably eight hours north. So close. So, Lubbock. Okay. You know, I mean, I'm just saying that's a funny yeah. argument to say like, well, if I was in London, I might think that Carlisle is not – that I'm okay with that, but if I'm buying something from Almeria, Spain, well, right. that was I think that was kind of the point of the post was that you have to be educated. It, it's not yeah, as, well, it's not right. as simple as, as looking and seeing 
the local sign at the grocery store yeah, versus just that, well, I'll always buy the local. His argument was you can't do that because if your goal is to be environmentally conscious, that's not always the best choice. Right. But and that's where a yeah. sense of place comes about as well. Local changes wherever you go. Yeah. It's a lot easier if you're in D.C. to say local is three states around you. Whereas local in Texas may just be the state of Texas. Yeah. Well, right. that's a good point, too. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Texas is so – yeah, just from a geographic so standpoint. There's, there's a yeah. sense of place that people don't recognize. And, again, a sense of place, you can say physical boundaries, but it's not really physical boundaries. It's more of well, area around you. That's why, like, you know, the, the, it's a little off subject, but not really. I mean, the, you know, the – talks about like labeling local of all the farmers markets sure. to be 50 miles. Yeah. It's like, so then peaches in Fredericksburg aren't local anymore. Right. Their state. Yeah. Or goat from Comanche's state. state. Well, and that's I one mean, of the things too. I mean, I, I, I talked I to know. dad about selling his milk, you know, at, at some of the farmers markets, but it's not going to be local because it's up by Waco. So, which is just funny to me because the problem is the way we're educating people is to think that they should just buy local. Right. And, so then, you know, should the people up in Comanche just stop farming because they're not going to have any luck selling because people aren't going to, you know what I mean? Right. Well, that's a good point. Because they're not near a metropolitan area that yeah, sells Yeah, I mean, we'd be, I mean, I'd be, if I had to just sell there, I mean, our, we'd be out of business and then the people that, you know, we co-op with would yeah. all be out of business. Mm-hmm. They, you know, they would stop growing stuff. Right. Oh, my God. It's that, still a problem of education. I'm a locavore. I will admit it. I'm a locavore. But I don't support that term sure okay yeah because i recognize the fact that other states have put a definition on local california 100 miles new york 150 miles i may be transposing those but whatever right so they've actually put a legal limit on what is defined local in texas you can't do that there's just no way that you can do that but i know for a fact that If I go to a store or to a farmer's market or farm stand or side of the road or whatnot, if I go, hey, listen, was this grown in Texas, I'm going to buy it. But if it says it was grown in Kansas, I'm not going to buy it. What about Louisiana? That's a really – see, debatable. So, so, I mean, if we go down – if we stop at a stand in Anaheim. How about Mexico? Well, yeah, there, right. there again. How local is Mexico? Well, in Brownsville, it's super local. Or if I'm in South San Antonio and this is from Mexico, right. well, I can't buy that. That's not local. What are you talking about? It's not local. Uvalde or, or, right. or what is it? Piedras uh, Negras is just right there. Right. <laughs> so it gets, you know, local's really hard to define. And that's why you start looking at moral implications and how it was grown and is it good for that region? Again, if. They raise Brahma beef in the north of Mexico. I would rather buy that than Angus beef that is going to be detrimental to the ecosystem in this part of the country. It's just the way that it's going to be. You have to be educated about how things are raised, food, proteins, and produce. And I guess the the whole education thing, at least we have the internet. You know what I mean? It's one of those things that if we want the information, if – if we taste something at a restaurant and we're like, wow, that's really good. Well, it was sourced local ingredients. We can get on the internet and we can find that stuff now. Right. But there are people who are doing it. TOFCA, Texas Organic Farmers yeah. and Gardening Association, is doing it. FARFA, the Farm and Ranch Freedom Alliance, is doing it. 
the SFC is doing it. Restaurants are putting out stuff. Not other nonprofits are putting out recipes and recommendations. And there stuff are like documentarians that. who are putting out films about this very subject. I've never heard about that. You haven't. I haven't. Do so, tell me more. <laughs> so one of the questions that I have to ask you, I've, the Farm City State title. Yeah. So you got to tell me. It's farm hyphen city comma state. Yeah. Now, from a from if you just hear it spoken, it sounds as if it's three words, but farm city is a hyphenated word. So explain the title to me, David. As, so, a, as an English nerd, that I, I I love the title because of the ambiguity of that. The title of the indie film Farm City State is a complete. Love affair and ode to city states, worldwide city states. Okay. Hong Kong, mm-hmm. um, other places in the world that have complete financial freedom, complete political freedom, complete societal control, and all this other good stuff, and how they attempt. To build a community that's not run by a federal government. And I would need to do a little bit more research to actually define that whole federal government type of thing. So, But in the end, I was inspired by Hong Kong and other city-states, these huge metropolitan areas that try to do everything possible for themselves. And so that's where Farm City State came from. And I believe that if a city or any developing region takes food production into the planning sessions of how they innovate and how they move towards the future, they do become a Farm City State. That's awesome. So that's that's how it came about. Well, guys, we're right at uh, about an hour and 15. So we'll probably go ahead and wrap up. So, Ty... Uh, where can folks find you and uh, your produce and proteins? Sure. Well, the easiest way to find me is every Sunday at the Hope Farmer's Market at Saltia Plaza in East Austin from 11 to 3. That's the best way. Um, otherwise, look me up on the internet, windyhillorganics.com, and you can find out all the awesome restaurants and grocery stores that carry us. Awesome. Awesome. David, when's the film coming out, buddy? Uh, the film is done. A portion of it showed at the University of Texas Chef Symposium last week. Uh, There will be a thank you premiere at the end of August, early September here in Austin uh, for everyone involved. Um, It's already been accepted into film festivals. Ah, congratulations. uh, And uh, I will be announcing things on the website, www.farmcitystate.com, here shortly. Awesome. Is there anything else you guys want to mention, promote, advertise before we cut it? Education. 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 And I always just may Eat. Try. <laughs> share. Well, is that the Julia Roberts movie? Or is it? Is it? No. <laughs> <laughs> nice. <laughs> nice. All right, guys. Thanks a lot. Thank you. <laughs>